in my opinion, some people have this capability to pedal so hard that all the oxygen gets used by their legs and very little of it goes to their brain. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho, welcome to episode 130 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking shit. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash fat. And yes, a review to get us underway today. Incredible podcast, five stars from Race Lightspeed from the US. This is the best performance cycling podcast available. Damien delivers a fast-paced podcast with detailed, relevant, and easy-to-absorb information for both the semi-pro and dedicated cyclist looking to increase their level of cycling performance. I've been listening to the podcast for over a year, and I'm still blown away how Damien produces his podcast every week with high high-profile guests, cutting-edge cycling data, and reviews on the latest gear. Incredible podcast. Well, that's a mighty fine review. Thank you very much for taking the time out to write it. I really do appreciate it, and I appreciate every review I get, so keep them coming. I had a complaint from someone the other day. Well, not really a complaint, but somebody saying that there is nothing left to say. Trust me, even if you just write Good podcast. Thank you. I am so, so grateful. So if you do like the show, I would love a review on iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me go Gatorade. That's G. Thank you very much. Okay. Performance probe number one this week, effects of short-term carbohydrate restricted diet on strength and power performance. So the purpose of this study was to examine the effects of switching from a habitual diet to a carbohydrate-restricted diet on strength and power performance in trained men and women. The study had 16 men and 15 women, so not a bad number. Subjects performed hand grip, diometry, vertical jump, one rep bench press and back squat, maximum rep bench press and a 30-second Wingate anaerobic cycling test after consuming a habitual diet, which consisted of 40.7% carbs, 22.2% protein, and 34.4% fat for seven days, and again following a carbohydrate-restricted diet of 5.4% carbohydrates, 35.1% protein, and 53.6% fat for seven days. So subjects consumed significantly fewer total kilocalories during the carbohydrate-restricted diet. Duh, this is normally what happens compared to the habitual diet. Body mass decreased significantly. And despite a reduction in body mass, strength and power outputs were maintained for men and women during the carbohydrate-restricted diet. Kind of surprising, but it was a short amount of time, seven days. But these findings may have implications for sports that use weight classes and in which strength and power are determinants of success. And when you are talking those sports that do have weight classes, they're normally dehydrating to crazy amounts and then they're rehydrating just before their actual event. So this could be an alternative for that because it's definitely going to preserve the power and strength 
according to the results from this study. But we can't really pull a lot of this for us because it lacks the endurance component. It really is too risky to restrict carbohydrates before a big event. Yes, in the sports which require these weigh-ins and have limited or no carbohydrate requirement, then this could be useful. But in cycling, it's a definite no-no. So sorry, folks, you have to work hard for your gains right up until the start of the race. Probe 2, Alejandro Valverde battling in the mountains via the Team Movie Star website, this is a look at Alejandro Valverde's numbers at the Welter Apey Vasco in 2014. Alejandro Battle in the Mountains, Stage 5, led the riders from Ibar to Marquina Zemen over 160 kilometers, and it included five classified climbs of 2, 3, 3, 1, and 2 category. The profile was relentless, and the riders almost did 3,000 meters of ascent. On such a ride, ambitious amateurs would be proud to hold an average of 30 kilometers per hour. When you let the best teams in the world loose on this terrain, the pace is relentless, and the finishing time was 3 hours 56.56 for an average of 40 kilometers per hour. So the early part of the race, deceptively hard. The break of the day of 15 riders included Movistar's Ruben Plaza and went early. In the peloton behind, first Tinkoff and then Movistar team boys made the pace to ensure that the gap never grew too much. Looking at Alejandro's data, we see that the day starts out quite hard and in the first 30 kilometers, the peloton went up two short climbs already at a fast pace. If you listened in last week to the Team Tactics episode, this would be familiar to you. Until the break is allowed to go away, the pace is always on. And as a result, Alejandro's 5-minute power average peak was over 400 watts right from that beginning moment. But this pace also continued after the break was away. After these two climbs and before the last four of the day, there was no categorized difficulties, but the racing was still hard and fast. The short little climbs meant constant pushes by the riders, and we see Alejandro's five-minute power cross over 400 watts once again. The four climbs, one chance to apply pressure. The tactic was to put Tinkoff under pressure and attempt to crack Alberto on the final climb. To rid him of his teammates, the pace was kept high on the three climbs before the final one. As a result, the peloton shrunk even further as teammate after teammate sacrificed himself for the mission. The third last climb was particularly hard with Alejandro reaching up to 500 watts over one minute and another strong peak towards the top of the climb. On the last climb, it was showtime after a very hard 11 minutes at 425 watts normalized. Alejandro launches a violent attack before the top of the climb, reaching almost 800 watts over 30 seconds. Only Alberto was able to respond and they attacked the descent together. Unfortunately, the finish was too far and the remainders of the lead group caught up with the leaders on the downhill. In the final brunch sprint, Andro only had to succumb to Ben Swift after peaking at over 1,050 watts in the final meters. What we can pull out of the decisive durations in an effort to understand where we need power to make a difference in our own races, five-minute power was mentioned two times in the analysis. It was needed to just stay in contact with the bunch. It wasn't through 
overly aggressive moves, just survival. Basically then, this is a prerequisite for anyone in the bunch to stay with the peloton. On the third climb, one minute power is mentioned. And this is the final push to the top where he sat at over 500 watts to crest the hill with his teammates. The final hill where only the contenders come out to play shows what is needed to make the selection before any moves are put down. In this case, 11 minutes at a normalized power of 425 watts. This isn't exactly extraordinary under normal circumstances but on the final climb of the fifth stage on a tour is another story when alejandro makes the break the 30 seconds at 800 watts is the most impressive feat to me and this was also highlighted by the fact that contador was the only one that could go with him if you are wanting to emulate this in races here is a way to prepare for it in training Two intervals that begin with a 30-second sprint, 15 seconds out of the saddle, then back in the saddle. Push yourself to an average of 200% of your threshold wattage in these 30 seconds, just as Alejandro did. Then ride for three minutes and really hammer at 100 or 110% of your threshold wattage. And then finish off with an out-of-the-saddle 10-second burst after the three minutes at over 200% of your threshold wattage. Train where you will attack either on the flat or in the hills. The last part is definitely more akin to a sprint finish, but it could also be the same as getting over the crest of a hill because we know it's important to ride over the top of hills, not just to the peak. And speaking of tough bits and sprinting, while it was Ben Swift that came away with the win, 1,050 watts doesn't sound like a big number, and it's not, except for in this context and the others like it. Think about Ben and what he had to endure before he got to this point. That's impressive and smart to wait it out until he could unleash his power where he knows he can use it best. Definitely good lessons all round. Alrighty, let's get to the nuts and bolts and this week a user's guide to fueling with fats and carbs. There is no doubt that the impact of diet has on performance is an important consideration for endurance athletes, especially when aiming for maximal energy production within the body's resources and the ability to convert fuel into energy. And the body itself generates energy, ATP, from either carbohydrate or fat. More specifically, the body gets its fuel from either ingested carbohydrate, this is gels, sports drinks, food, whatever, to intramuscular and liver hepatic carbohydrate stores. Stored carbohydrate is called glycogen, or three, intramuscular and adipose fat stores. This is your wobbly bits. These fuel sources each has their own advantages and disadvantages to fueling your cycling. A major disadvantage for the ingested and liver carbohydrates and for the fat stores is the rate of energy production because even if you had a moderate level of fat burning, the combined energy generation from ingested carbohydrate and fat stores equates to approximately 480 kilocalories an hour or about 90 to 120 watts per hour on the bike. 
This isn't enough to even get us through one solid hour of training, which means that we need to bring in the third energy store to generate energy at a rate that we need to complete our training and racing. For intramuscular carbohydrate stores, the rate at which energy can be produced is much better. Energy can be produced from carbohydrate up to very high levels of intensity. The downside to carbohydrate burning is that the carbohydrate stores in the body are quite limited, somewhere in the range of 1,500 to 3,000 kilocalories, depending primarily on how well-trained you are, whereas fat stores can essentially be unlimited and more than 50 times the amount of carbohydrates. So there is a difference between these energy sources and... Quoting Alan Cousins here, he says, The output for any competitive endurance race requires some energy to be generated from carbohydrate oxidation, aerobic glycolysis. This is because fat oxidation is a fundamentally rate-limited process. And while enormous in capacity, it is quite limited in power or rate of energy production. Within the range of specific race intensities, say approximately 270 watts to 300 watts, more than half of the energy supplied for the activity of the example athlete in this article comes from sugar burning. This is a necessity of the rate of energy demand when pedaling a bike at 300 watts. There is no way to say that his fat burning isn't impressive, maxing out at 7 kilocalories a minute in the top 5% of all tests that Alan has done, but rather to say that for an Ironman to be competitive, his sugar burning or aerobic glycotic power must be equally impressive. In this case, topping out at almost 25 kilocalories a minute. This rate of pure aerobic energy generation is important for all endurance athletes, even those who specialize over long distances. This rate is not something that just happens. It must be trained. In order for glycosis to be trained, it requires that the athlete has some glycogen sugar in the system in the absence of a sufficient amount of carbohydrate intake. This simply won't be the case and the athlete's output will be significantly limited. This goes some way in explaining why we need carbohydrates. It doesn't really touch on fat, but we're going to get to that. I want to start by having a closer look at the role of carbohydrates in fueling your exercise. So going back to the beginning, which is around the early 1900s, where it was discovered that carbohydrates were an important fuel for exercise. This was reinforced throughout the 20th century with studies in the 60s, 70s, and 80s showing that muscle glycogen played a significant role during exercise, specifically nutrition during races and high-intensity training sessions. The potential for carbohydrate consumption to improve performance has been extensively researched, and a review done of 61 studies on carbohydrate and endurance performance by Stellingworth and Cox concluded that 82% of these studies demonstrated statistically significant improvements in performance. So there's no doubt these days that the consumption of carbohydrates before, during, and after races is an important element in a cyclist's nutritional strategy. But up until approximately 2004, it was more the case of just systematically shoving down your throat any carbohydrates in any form possible. 
Pasta, bread, bakery stops was the norm, and power bars and sports drinks were the most sophisticated nutritional inventions of the time. What happened in 2004, though? There were a series of breakthroughs with regard to feeding during exercise. Sifting through issues such as absorption rates and minimum dose and response effects, carbohydrate optimization during exercise at this point started to be refined. Carbohydrate oxidation, which I did mention before, but oxidation being to combine or become combined chemically with oxygen, as in when during aerobic activity, was discovered to increase in a linear fashion in relation to intensity. Before the last 10 years of breakthroughs, it was thought that the ingestion of carbohydrates would only increase performance over two hours, but recent studies have shown that there is even a benefit during shorter high-intensity exercise. These two findings alone start to create a much more refined approach to carbohydrate intake for different intensities and duration. So let's go through what there is out there now. Starting with exercise lasting 30 to 75 minutes, the amount of carbohydrate needed is small amounts or a mouth rinse, depending on how sensitive you are to ingesting something into your body or just getting it into your mouth, getting the receptors happening, and then getting rid of it so you're not actually ingesting it. The recommended type of carbohydrate, single or multiple transportable carbohydrates, and additional recommendation, nutritional training recommended. If you move on to a duration of one to two hours, this is where you start to get a little more serious with ingestion, and we're talking 30 grams per hour is the recommendation here. Again, the type is single or multiple transportable carbohydrates, and nutrition training, again, is recommended. When we move on to the duration of two to three hours, we step it up again to 60 grams per hour as the recommended intake. Everything else stands except now nutritional training is highly recommended because now we need to train the gut to accept this and you have to train over time by adding more and more so that you're able to handle this amount of carbohydrates. If you're talking anything over two and a half hours, 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour is the recommendation. The recommended type of carbohydrate, only multiple transportable carbohydrates and nutritional training is again essential. This has been used by pro cyclists in the peloton to maintain and increase performance. 90 grams per hour is a hell of a lot of carbohydrates, but if you do push yourself over time, definitely it is possible to absorb this much carbohydrate. Moreover, here are a couple of recommendations for carbohydrate intake during exercise events from Aska Yenkendrup. I know I've butchered that with a weird accent. Sorry, Aska. He's the Global Senior Director of the Gatorade Sports Science Institute. And before you say anything, it's not as sus as it sounds. Gatorade, created to help replace what you sweat out. Who said that? Who said that? All right. Recommendation number one, the recommended carbohydrate intake can be achieved by consuming drinks, gels, or low-fat, low-protein, and low-fiber solid food bars. And selection should be based on personal preference. So you can mix and match as long as you're getting the recommended intake. Number two, athletes can adopt a mix and match strategy to achieve their carbohydrate intake goals. 
I thought I just said that. Number three, carbohydrate intake should be balanced with a fluid intake plan based on fluid needs. And it must be noted that solid foods and highly concentrated carbohydrate solutions have been shown to reduce fluid absorption. Number four, And the final one, it is highly recommended to train, practice the nutrition strategy for competition to reduce the chances of gastrointestinal discomfort and to increase absorptive capacity of the intestine, which is exactly what I was saying as far as slowly building up over time so your body has the ability to accept what you're putting into it. All right, it sounds like we are all over carbohydrates and for good reason. It was and still is the number one fuel source for exercise. So what about fat? Its rep is darker. Evil fat has been given a lower status in society and even lower in sports, which is funny. It has been fighting for some limelight, I would say, for the past five years or so, probably a little bit longer. I know that overall it's even longer than that. We could go back 15 years and find some interesting studies on this, but I'm only talking about the latest increase in popularity. So the greatest chatter that you would have heard about fat is maximizing fat utilization, unlocking the intramuscular and adipose fat stores to fuel your cycling or any endurance activity for that matter. One thing that I want to clear up before we go any further though is that you might think this is mostly to do with burning fat as a means to weight loss. But in reality, greater fat utilization does not equal weight loss. The two terms are often used to describe the same thing. A big part in losing weight is the requirement for a negative energy balance, which is consuming less calories than your body expends. Without this, there probably won't be any weight loss. It's not 100% guaranteed, this mix, but it is a very important part of it for sustained weight loss over a long period of time. So now that's out of the way, why would you consider increasing the rate of fat oxidization as a fuel source? Well, one of the main reasons could be to keep your carbohydrates until you really need them. The stochastic nature of racing requires you to be ready for an effort of any length or duration at any point in the race. So riders need to generate the highest power in the final kilometers of an event after a lot of riding. So training and nutrition must enhance the rider's efficiency, enabling them to resist fatigue and test the extremes of endurance, maximal aerobic power and anaerobic endurance all during the same event. Also, being dependent on carbohydrate as a major energy source during exercise has some obvious limitations which were discussed earlier, it surrounds that issue of limited supply, etc. And therefore, adapting the body to utilize more of our body fat stores to fuel exercise makes practical sense. Fat utilization is different to carbohydrate as intensity increases. Carbohydrate oxidation will increase proportionally with exercise, whereas the rate of fat oxidation will initially increase but decrease again at high exercise intensities. Meaning, carbohydrates will start to approach 100% reliance at 100% of VO2 max. But if you could increase your cycling efficiency or your metabolic efficiency, whatever you want to call it, and reduce carbohydrate use at moderate intensities, we could save our carbohydrate stores for when they are really needed. 
Well, I don't know if I've convinced you or not. Certainly, the jury and the science is still out on fat burning. The poster study on the idea of train low, which was also the first modern investigation of the effects of reducing muscle glycogen availability on training adaption and performance, was undertaken by Hansen et al. Seven untrained males were studied. They completed a rigorous training program of leg, knee extension, kicking exercises five days a week for 10 weeks. Both of the subjects' legs were trained according to a different schedule, but the total amount of work undertaken by each leg was the same. One leg trained twice a day, every second day low, in which the second training session commenced with low glycogen content, whereas the other leg trained daily high, under conditions of high glycogen availability. Muscle biopsies taken from both legs before and after the training regime revealed that resting muscle glycogen content in both legs was similar pre-intervention but was increased in the leg that trained low after week 10. The time to exhaustion during single leg kicking at 90% of post-training maximal power output was twice as long for low as high after training. The results of Hansen et al. 2005 clearly demonstrated that in previously untrained individuals, adaption is augmented by commencing 50% of training sessions with low glycogen availability at least for the first 10 weeks of a short-term training intervention. While definitely the findings of this study were intriguing, it wasn't clear if athletes with a history of endurance training would have the same benefit as the untrained subjects in the study. Less fit individuals embarking on a fitness regime and training with low muscle glycogen availability is much different to an ongoing endurance athlete that has been working at their efficiency for a long time. Also, the training load in the study was clamped such that both low and high legs trained at the same intensity. The low leg therefore set the upper limit for the workload to be undertaken by the high leg. But in a real world setting, an athlete would produce greater power outputs or speeds when performing intense endurance-based training when glycogen availability was high. Finally, it was uncertain how improvements in one-legged kicking time to exhaustion translated, if at all, to dynamic whole body cycling. There was a study, though, that showed that the train low idea made it possible for fat metabolism in cyclists. It was called Training Low with Muscle Glycogen Enhances Fat Metabolism in Well-Trained Cyclists. Funny that. But this study set out to determine the effects of training with low muscle glycogen on exercise performance, substrate metabolism, and skeletal muscle adaption. So it did go through this process of going out and training low, which is not eating breakfast and heading out the door for a few hours, two, three hours, maybe more if you can try and stretch it. So you can try and force the fat adaption. 14 well-trained cyclists were pair-matched and randomly assigned to a high or a low glycogen training group 
Subjects performed nine aerobic trainings of 90 minutes at 70% of VO2 max and nine high-intensity interval training sessions, which were eight times five minutes with one-minute recovery. This was done over a three-week period. The high group trained once daily, alternating between the 90 minutes at 70% of VO2 max on day one and the eight-by-five-minute efforts with one-minute recovery the following day where the low group trained twice every second day, first performing 70% of VO2 max and then one hour later performing the eight times five minute efforts with one minute recovery. The pre-training and post-training measures were a resting muscle biopsy, metabolic measures during steady state cycling and a time trial. So the results of this study were the power output during the eight by five minutes effort with one minute recovery was 297 plus or minus eight watts in low compared to 323 plus or minus 9 watts in high. However, the time trial performance improved by approximately 10% in both groups. Fat oxidization during steady-state cycling increased after training in low So what are the conclusions from this study? Training with low muscle glycogen reduced training intensity and in performance was no more effective than training with high muscle glycogen. However, fat oxidization was increased after training with low muscle glycogen, which may have been due to the enhanced metabolic adaptions in skeletal muscle. The studies out there, they're definitely going back and forth on this topic. But what I can say is anecdotally, the evidence is quite high. And if you're willing to make some changes, you could run your own experiment to see what happens to you and your cycling. And like anything in cycling, it starts with a benchmark and some testing. So how do you measure? Well, you could use the breezing that I've mentioned before. It's a consumer product that it will pretty much tell you all you need to know. The only thing it lacks, though, and it really is kind of a biggie, it can't figure out exactly where your fat burning zone is. This is important because you need to know how your body is burning fuel at different durations and intensities to know where you have to train for potential adaptions. Luckily, there has been a protocol developed to find your fat max. It's a pretty cool name, that fat max. The exercise intensity where fat oxidation is maximal and where you should train to encourage fat utilization. It's basically a step test where you start at 95 watts and increase work rate by 35 watts every three minutes until exhaustion. During the test, a breath-by-breath analysis is performed using an online gas analysis system which uses indirect calimetry, a technique that provides accurate estimates of of energy expenditure from measures of carbon dioxide production and oxygen consumption during steady state exercise and rest. The results are highly individual, so I'm not going to give you a specific range to ride at, but I will have a look at what type of training and diet changes have anecdotally shown an increase in fat utilization over time. There are some doubts out there about this protocol and the FATMAX results. Those studies are still coming up and there is nothing conclusive from either side yet. Right now, it's the best we've got though. So if you can find a place that does this test with the right equipment, there is no reason not to use it for your own purposes. How do you improve your ability to burn fat? That is the main question that we've been leading to. 
Training and diet. It's as simple as that. Well, it sounds simple, but of course, there's a little bit more to it. The impact of training enables you to increase the intensity where fat utilization occurs, while diet impacts the amount of fat used at those intensities. So let's just start with nutrition and quoting Alan Cousins again. Studies have shown that providing caloric requirements are met that an individual's burn rate will match their intake rate with respect to carbohydrate and fat after a quite unpleasant three to four day adaption period. So be prepared for this if you're going to go down this road. Very good ultra-endurance athletes typically metabolize less than 40% of their energy from carbohydrates. Accordingly, approximately 40% of their nutritional intake comes from carbohydrates. Additionally, studies have shown that athletes who burn more fat at rest also burn more fat at all aerobic exercise intensities. So if some is good, is more better? Why not shoot for 100% fat burning? While close to 100% fat burning is physiologically possible, it is not conductive to the requirements of carbohydrate replenishment that comes with high volume aerobic training. Additionally, while possible to alter energy substrates to a large degree via diet, there are a number of hormonal and genetic factors which come into play to affect the level of satiety that diets of different compositions of macronutrients provides. For this reason, a vigilant but steady move towards a more moderate carbohydrate diet is suggested. The efficacy of the 40-30-30, 40% carbohydrates, 30% protein, and 30% fat diet by Dr. Phil Maffetone now has a growing body of scientific literature backing him up. Not only this, but cut sugar from your diet. The main reason that you would do a diet like this or the reason that it is apparently working in changing the fat utilization is that this diet creates the right environment to become a high fat burner, specifically because of the concentration of free fatty acids within the blood. Alan says that this is the prerequisite for fat burning at rest and all exercise intensities. In other words, if your blood is full of glucose as opposed to free fatty acids, you will not be providing the muscles with any stimulus to learn to use fat as fuel. High free fatty acid levels and low moderate blood glucose levels are a prerequisite for fat burning. This has large nutritional implications. If you keep your blood sugar levels perpetually elevated, you will never become a fat burner. So let's move to training now. What type of training actually will help with this adaption? While improving free fatty acid availability by altering your habitual diet is necessary, it is not in and itself sufficient to ensure improved fat oxidation during exercise. After you have liberated the fatty acids so that they are ready to be burnt, you still need sufficient power plants to burn them. At low exercise intensities, Fat oxidation is largely influenced by the mitochondrial density within each low-intensity muscle fiber, which in turn is mediated simply by the number of contractions each fiber performs. It should be noted that high-intensity exercise, moderately hard and greater, that produces larger amounts of lactate also produces a hostile environment for key transporters of the long-chain fatty acids into mitochondria. In summary, a moderate carbohydrate, moderate fat, moderate protein diet coupled with a lot of easy, steady training represents the best method for turning yourself from a sugar burner into a lean, mean, fat burning machine. 
It's interesting, hey? I have seen changes in several athletes, and while the performance aspects aren't spoken about much, the health and intake benefits are. And one final note here is this isn't necessarily suggesting you train low. So there are really a couple of schools of thought on this, but if you follow the Alan Cousins method, then you're talking about more of a diet change overall than riding in a glycogen depleted state. They are definitely two ideas worth trying and something we need to keep an eye on because this work is ongoing as Team Sky and British Cycling are proving because they're currently conducting a study to look at the effect of adaptions using protein during train low rides to avoid the negative sensations associated with training low. So while we are getting close to nailing the carbohydrates, fat has some way to go. Like everything that's out there though, you will have to try it yourself to know whether it works for you or not. Let's get to the tech hacks and product section. This week it's a product from Chili Technology called the Chili Pad. And the Chili Pad uses water to generate a wide range of in-bed temperature controls using a cooling mattress pad. Similar to the semiconductor technology that cools your computer, water passes through the chip and depending on the direction of the electron flow, the water is cooled or heated. So you get it. It's a pad that you put on a double bed. It has two controls so you can have cool or hot. I first thought about this idea and anybody that sleeps with another person in their bed will kind of probably understand this. I don't know. My experiments over the years have been that one person is always hot, one person's cold, whatever that is. I've never found the combination where you always just want to be hugging or you always want to be separated, whatever that is. But in practice, it seems that it's not actually working out for a lot of people. There's a little bit of grumbling on the interwebs that the chili pad doesn't cool down to its lowest advertised temperature. There's leaks. It doesn't heat up. There's mold on the tubing. Plus, the beast of a control box puts out a bunch of heat, which totally defeats the purpose in summer. But there are peeps that love it. And so, I don't know, it's hard for me to make a recommendation without trying it and using the product to see how useful it is. But I tell you what, it's mad expensive. It's around 500 bucks. And perhaps compared to your $6,000 sleeping ensemble, it isn't a hell of a lot. But really, it's crazy compared to the cost of sticking a fan directly at you or whatever you would normally do to cool yourself or heat yourself by turning on one half of an electric blanket. So for me right now, I'm just going to have to keep using the regulator, the temperature regulator, which is simply my leg out from under the covers and many hot sleepers would understand this and definitely hat tipped my wife for inventing that one. But at this point, stage. I can't recommend it. If you have it and you use it, I am really interested. So definitely drop me an email. And now that quote from the top of the show, it's Floyd the Void Landis. I really don't have anything to say about Floyd, but here's the clip in its entirety. I've been lucky because I've been on the team. The first three years I did the tour was 2002, three and four. And I was always on the team with Lance and we were expected to control the race and we weren't expected to try to get in breakaways and try to win stages we had a goal to win the race and um for that reason there wasn't any um team plan where you would say okay we got nine guys and we're going to try to get one guy in the breakaway and that guy once he gets there 
Uh, I was going to try to figure out what's the other, what the what the the strengths of the, of the other riders in that breakaway are, and then try to figure out how to win the race. We always just tried to control the race. Um, but as to what goes on in a breakaway once they get there, there are quite a few teams in the tour who don't have a person capable of winning the race, and so their objective for the tour quite often is uh, to try to win any given stage. And that makes it very difficult to figure out uh, from a spectator's point of view, but also from the point of view of the teams that I have been on or uh, the other guys in the race, because most of the time they just want to get at least one guy from the team in the breakaway. It doesn't matter who it is. And then once they're there, um, they try to figure out if they're strong enough to win and if they are, what tactics they need to use um, to win the stage. Um, some of the times it makes sense. Some of the times, um, in my opinion, some people have this capability to pedal so hard that all the oxygen gets used by their legs and very little of it goes to their brain. And then that leads to the problem of trying to figure out what it is that their plan is. Uh, I will tell you, and this is not a joke, probably half of the time when you're in the race, you're equally as confused as the people watching on television. <laughs> That's been my experience. And there are a lot of things going on in a race. There's, a, there's often teams who are trying to get the green jersey, and there's teams who are trying to get the climber's jersey. There's teams who just want to win a stage. And mixing all those things together makes it very complicated and very hard to figure out exactly what it is that any given team wants to try to achieve. But even if you know all that, you still quite often are confused. That's been, that's been my experience. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash fat to find any links used in this week's episode. Until next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 